Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, this is another listener request. Do you remember when we were talking to Gary Sheffield and we got talking about Australian self-inflicted wounds? And he yeah. said, oh, you should get Craig Stockings on because he'd be great because he could talk all about zombie myths of the First World War and whatever. And uh, then listeners started going, yeah, that would be great. So I, I stalked him and Craig is here. <laughs> professor Craig Stockings is... Uh, He's at New South Wales, but he's not at the moment, but he is a professor at New South Wales University. But at the moment, he's over at the Australian War Memorial working as the official historian of Australian operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor. So he's writing the official history of more recent conflict. Craig, how are you? Hey, Alex. Hello, Alina. Thank you for the invitation. I consider myself duly stalked. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> and enjoy it. Just, just tell everyone you're enjoying it. But um, we, yeah, you wrote this book, Zombie Myths of Australian Military History, um, which is brilliant. And we want to, we're basically what we're going to do, I've already said it's good, we're going to put a pin out of a grenade and chuck it into Australia, basically. Because um, we're going to talk about the reality of, of myths and um, the Australian psyche and how these things are remembered in Australian military history and why they may not be accurate, which is is a really interesting talk but do you want to do you know what start us off you'll explain it better than i just explain to everybody what you mean by a zombie myth yeah okay <clears throat> i can do that it's come from an idea that myself and some fellow military historians of a sort of academic bent had a few years ago now and the, i guess the hook here is what do you mean by zombie well i'd reckon if I asked you guys or anybody sort of walking down the street, what would characterise a physical sort of movie type zombie? You'd probably say things like, you can correct me, but you'd probably say things like a slow moving, sluggish, probably not too bright or, or interested in being intellectual or precise about things, more, more of a being sort of running on instinct, um, never appears as sort of alone, but just in big sham shambling packs. It sounds like uh, Twitter. Yeah, yeah, right. But the <laughs> most, I guess the most dominant characteristics of the movie zombie for us or for me is how damn hard they are to kill. You can mm. knock a zombie down, you can push it around, you can shoot it so, so much as the movies tell me anyway, and it still keeps getting up. So the idea was to transpose that make-believe zombie idea into something more zombies of the mind because it appears to us, at least in Australia, though I think from my discussions with international colleagues, it's not only in Australia, 
there is a set of ideas or myths that are getting around in many countries, a lot of them connected to the nation's military past, which are just fairy tales rather than historical events. Yet no matter how many times academics or professional historians or anybody can disprove them, can talk about them, can try and add some context and precision to them, makes no difference. They keep shambling on, if you see what I mean. They're almost unkillable. So what we set about doing is to find, I don't know, a dozen, ten, the most egregious ones that we think exist in Australia and just try, rather forlornly, but try anyway, to see if we can define a difference between a myth, which has its use and is reasonably natural in, in a social context, and history, because the two aren't the same, at least to us or to me, Alex. There's plenty of room in the world for both, but they serve different purposes. And the problems happen here is when the two get merged. This is or so relevant today, isn't it? Yeah, more specifically when somebody has difficulty distinguishing one one from the other. And this is where I think a lot of, I guess, the the danger of the mental zombies comes up. Now, that was a whole whole lot of long-winded way of saying this is what we <laughs> call the book Zombie Myths, right? Well, we had Inga on from your neck of the woods to talk about Titanic conspiracies, and she calls it Titanic whack-a-mole, as in you hit every silly conspiracy theory or, or nonsense myth down and three more spring up. Yeah, but it's a very sense. It can be a very sensitive issue because the t- types of myths I'm talking about are connected in so many ways to foundation stories, mm. particularly in a young country like Australia, whose whose found whose foundation myth, at least you know, white Australia, is all about World War One and earning nationhood by the blood was sacrificed on the Western Front and Gallipoli and this is what how a nation was born, etc. Because the fact is our nation was born with a stroke of a pen without a war, but that's mm-hmm. not as good a yarn. And even at the time, it was a real sort of nationalistic social event, which is, again, as I say, important and valuable and has its place, but only tenuously linked with the historical events that it comes from. So we talked to Matt a few weeks ago about Anzac Day and the Australian national identity. Let's go a bit more into the foundation myth and look at how accurate it is. You don't think it's harmful, do you? Even if it's not entirely accurate? We're talking about Anzac and no, I don't personally, I have no personal problem with Anzac. As I say, as a foundation myth, it's a reasonably positive one. It advocates generally socially acceptable values, or at least the values that early 20th century Australia wanted to project on itself. It can be a little bit of white male exclusive if, you know, if, you, if you're going to criticise it. But it's generally, <coughs> pardon me, it's generally a reasonably positive foundation myth. The difficulty, though, is when that, as I say before, is, is when all the sentimentality and imagery and expectations connected to that myth story about what it is to be an Australian, um, you know, or a good Australian and what it is to, to be seen to be Australian, when that gets mixed up with the historical events that it comes from and people conflate the two, that's when we get a whole lot of, it makes it almost impossible to truly understand Australia's actual historical past and the lessons and the context that 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 can provide. And this is also where the hate mail comes from. Because when a pointy head like me starts talking about these issues, these issues that are held very close to the heart by people who choose not to or are unable to separate myth from history, 
then it feels like I'm attacking their identity and it feels like I'm attacking Australianness rather than having a historical discussion. And that's where the passion comes from. And I get it, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. It. But just because it's hard doesn't mean historians shouldn't try. One of the things that comes out of Anzac Day, uh, and I think it's fair to say carries on going and still goes on, is the idea that Australians are natural soldiers. Like, we touched on this a bit with Gary Sheffield. And like I said, we're not sitting here, are we, just determined to bash Australia? Um, but they uh, arguably, Peter Hart will tell you, <laughs> that by 1918 the, the Anzac Corps were considered like crack-fighting troops. They, they were a good unit, but it has been overdone, hasn't it? Well, the, the Australian Corps and the Canadian Corps mm-hmm. and the certain British Corps within those five armies. Um, look, let, I mean, if we go right back to the start of that idea, let me say there is no Australia in 1914 in any sensible modern conception of Australia. That, that's just not the place that it was. Mm. Early 20th century Australians were accurately described by their second prime minister as Australian Britons. We are members of an empire. That might not be as politically acceptable to say now, but it's nonetheless a fact. Proud members of Greater Britain, to borrow borrow a phrase of Seeley's. That is, to me, the dominant nationalism. It's important to distinguish that from patriotism. The dominant nationalism in Australia, up to and including World War I, was imperial. That's where the cultural connections lie. That's where the shared identity, the shared destiny lied. It didn't lie with the geopolitical entity of Australia. Now, that doesn't mean people didn't call themselves Australians, just like I call myself a New South Welshman. Mm-hmm. But it means that nationalism was, was to empire, not Australia. So when we say Australian troops, yes, they are. They are the Australian core. But that's not as it would be in the second half of the 20th century. This is not going to help Britain. Anyone who ever says that Australia went to help Britain in World War I does not understand the context of which they're speaking. Mm. Australia went to help itself yeah. because it is part of, an, of the empire. Well, Happily just part. even in the most practical terms, all of Australia's defence, am I right, is, is basically written into British defence strategy. Well, yes, certainly, certainly the defence, physical defence of Australia yeah. is relying on the Royal Navy. But, but that whole conception, I mean, I wouldn't say had, you know, and it just wasn't going to happen, it's a zombie myth, but had the Japanese landed in Queensland during World War II, we would never say that the Victorians went to save the Queenslanders. Mm. That would be Australians fighting for Australia. This is the truth of the early 20th century, whether we like, whether it's palatable now or not. So I'd say from the very beginning, one of the, the reality of empire is something we don't do very well with. And... And you'll see it all the time, at Anz, not only on Anzac Days, in textbooks and all these sorts of things, of, of people speaking about Austra- the Australia of the, of the 20th century, sorry, the 21st century, as if it was the same thing but in different clothes in 1914. And it's not. The whole world deals views are different. I mean, the, past are, the people in the past are aliens. They're not like us. I looked at, um, so I'm currently looking at, George V and his brother doing, you know, their worldwide cruise in the 1880s. And their tutor is supposed to be by them, but it's clearly not their tutor wrote it. And there's an account of it. And when they get to Australia, you're right, they get there. And the people greeting them um, 
are greeting them with the sentiment that they are British people who happen to have moved to Australia or who happen whose families have settled in Australia. They don't see themselves as a separate national identity at all, do they? No, indeed. That that idea of a, a separate Australianness, um, in terms of nationalism, not just local parochialism or patriotism, that doesn't come till till midway through the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. It's not. We're projecting the part, the future back in time, which is always a dangerous thing to do. And the fact of empire was, even at its highest, at its highest point, the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, is that you never find anyone anywhere more imperial than on the edges of empire. And when we're on the edges in Asia as a white outpost, as it were, at the time, there's no one more imperial than us, certainly more imperial than British liberals back in Whitehall. <laughs> so just tell us then this, nat- this natural soldiers myth. Yeah, it's, uh, it, okay. That is one that comes up all the time. And honestly, if I was to stop somebody on the street, and, and it'd be pretty weird to have this conversation, but ask them what they thought you know, were Australians good soldiers? I think that the general response would be, yeah, better than most. We happen to be fortunate enough that many of the, the wars we've fought in have been on the winning side, which helps. Mm-hmm. But the idea that ethnicity is a determinant of a battlefield outcome it is objectively a nonsense. I mean, I, I ask my own students, uh, do you, you're 19 years old, you've had no experience of uniform or war of the military or anything else, do you honestly believe, by virtue of the fact you were born in Perth, you were somehow innately superior on a battlefield because you were born there as opposed to someone born in Rome? And they laugh. Of course not, because that's intellect speaking. But the, the reaction or the gut reaction or the general consensus is, yeah, of course, we are, we are better fighters than most. Back, back you know, 100 years ago, we would talk about things like fresh country air and away from the degenerate atmosphere of British slums and all that sort of nonsense, even though we've always lived in the cities, not in the bush, by the way. But, um, but nowadays it endures. One of the um, case studies we used to try and investigate this idea was to look at um, the early campaigns in World War II in North Africa, the first place Australia fought in World War II against the Italian 10th Army, along with British troops. And we thought that was a good place to start because here we have absolute um, battlefield success by the Australians in their first test of battle in World War II. I mean, they were always going to succeed because the British made sure they would succeed, but nonetheless, they did. Huge disparities. The loss of a few hundred soldiers. Australians take 50,000 captives in places like Bardia, 60,000 in Tobruk and break the entire 10th Army or help break it. And that really feeds into the Anzacness back at home. And all of the headlines, even at the time, are all about the heirs of Anzac, and it was the, it was the Australianness that carried the day against the effete, perfumed Italians, etc., etc. All ethnic answers, because the Anzac as a myth is about ethnicity and about nationalism. So no one really wanted to know how could it be that such a small Australian force had so much military success, because the answer's already made. The answer is it's because they're Australians. You see what I mean? A little bit of digging here. And not too much. And we start to identify actual reasons for success and reasons for Italian failure. And as, as you'd predict, mateship, you know, good humour, um, blokiness, whatever other you want to ascribe to being Australian or Anzacness, never cleared a foxhole. Artillery and machine guns do. And we start getting down to actual reasons for battlefield success, even in such a one-sided contest, and they become clear. Australians are well supplied in terms of food. 
they got champagne on Christmas Day and plum puddings. They were pretty well looked after. For four days before the Battle of Bardi, the Italians men in the outpost hadn't had water. Australians had ample supplies of artillery. The Italians were using brass artillery pieces <clears throat> from the Balkan War um, previous to World War One. I'm choking here. Now, <laughs> every point, every point of meaningful military comparison, the Delta is stark. So taken together, it's absolutely explainable why one side was trounced by the other side, and we don't need ethnicity to to try and describe that because more mundane, more evidence-based, more historical reasons carry the day. Let's remember, it's the very same Australian troops, all full of that Anzac superiority, the same division then goes to, to Greece and gets kicked out by the Germans. Not because they, were, they lacked any of that ethnic Australianness as they had in North Africa, but because they faced an enemy whose relative military advantages were equal or slightly better than their own. Not because I was born in Germany, just because of all these measurable factors. But that was that would be an example of a really powerful or, or deep-set um, idea coming from the Anzac myth that is just not grounded in in historical fact. Now, what's a dip? Who cares? You might say, and plenty of people have said that to me. So what? What does that even matter? Well, for, I think, at least for me, it matters on a number of levels. Our conception of ourselves, based on a fairy tale for grown-up, intellectually mature Australians is not the same as a sense of history and past based on, re on reality. Tell me the analogy you use about the tooth fairy. Oh, do I have to? Yeah, because it's just it's succinct and it actually just, I think it's, it drives it home. Well, I have used this to students and people in lecture halls in the past uh -huh. and, I've, and I've dodged the tomatoes that have followed. <laughs> but the analogy goes a little bit something like this, Alex. As I've said before, I've got no problem with myths. They serve a, 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 a defined social purpose. They help us get through hard times. They help us make sense of the world around us, particularly vulnerable times or when we're young and when whatever. When my kids were young, they believed in the tooth fairy, a helpful myth that helped them deal with the trauma of losing their teeth, right? Very happy, no problem. I was very aware of the difference between the reality of the tooth fairy and the myth. That's great. If my children were still believing in that myth or, or were unable to distinguish the truth from the mythology there in their 40s, then I would worry that something's gone awry with their intellectual development. It's I so think true. <laughs> I, think, I don't think it's too much to ask modern-day Australians or modern people anywhere to recognise the power of both myth and history, accept them as, as serving different purposes, accept them, uh, them as being both valuable, but understanding that one is not the other. I think we're intellectually and uh, mature enough to deal with that. At least I hope so. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's move away from World War I. Talk to us about Australia and the Indigenous population especially the frontier wars? Yeah, it's a, it's a sensitive one. Um, it's, again, which doesn't mean we should avoid talking about it. I think it means we should talk about it more, right? Mm-hmm. But the frontier wars or the question of was there or was there not a war on the Australian frontier during white settlement is highly politicised. Um, you can imagine it's an issue that gets hijacked by extremes on both sides of, of the arguments. We get everything from there was no war, it's a beat up, to... The, to, there wasn't a war, it was just massacre upon massacre. Both of those extreme positions serve uh, political or, or cultural purposes of their own. But it's a really good case of them not matching the historical record very well. What actually occurred during White Settlement over an extended period from the you know, late 18th century through to the early 20th century in Australia was overwhelmingly peaceful coexistence to start with, particularly in areas where there was plenty of uh, food resources around, rivers and seasides and all the rest of it. That is the overwhelming experience. Yet there was violence, no question. And there were massacres, there's no question of that. As tragic as it was, there were absolutely massacres throughout that period at various times and places, and there are famous examples of that. But in between, what we actually have here is a frontier conflict of exactly the or frontier war of exactly the same sort, with different local circumstances, but exactly the same sort as you saw on the edge of empire everywhere. There were two sides. They fought on various occasions, like early in the Hawkesbury and in places like Arnhem Land. Aborigines fought quite well and quite hard and quite successfully. In the end, they were defeated as they must be defeated by technologically superior muskets and horses. That's the story of Indigenous peoples facing the encroachment of the empire everywhere. Doesn't mean they didn't fight. Doesn't mean they didn't fight bravely. They fought and lost. That's a war. There were political purposes on both sides. There were wars over resources on both sides. Resources in terms of corn and and so forth were used as weapons on both sides. So I don't think we should shy away from discussing a, a war just because one side lost badly. That's a reasonably common thing. And just because it's awkward today, but I have to say, it's awkward today because of what, because of what I, in, to my mind, because of what I started talking about at the beginning. That is people put, projecting modern Australian values, modern Australian attitudes to themselves and their culture backwards and, try, and trying to judge the past on those terms. That's why it's difficult today. That's why it can be exploited politically on either side today because that, because of that uh, lack of historical context, if you like. But th- that is an example, to my mind, of a myth that's, that's very hard to debunk from both sides. Why? Because it's to do with identity, it's to do with politics, it's to do with a whole lot of things that aren't history, Alex. Yeah, it's to do with race as well, which, as ever, is... It is to do with race. Yeah. And Australia has a history of having problems with race. Any student of Australian history will be aware of that. Issues are, or 
policies or politics or anything to do with race has, has plagued us. We're a very historically racist country to use the parts of today. That's what happens when you're a isolated white outpost in the, up on the other side of the world. Um, one myth that really does your head in is Breaker Moran, isn't it? Tell us who he is and the perception of him and then tell us why it's, you believe it's garbage. <laughs> yes, Breaker Morant. You may not, or your listeners may not have heard of Breaker Morant, but he's certainly a large or iconic figure in Australia. Um, the, the Breaker's fame comes in two parts. He's famous firstly as a uh, poet or a bush poet, if you like. I think he published 50-odd or 60-odd poems in the Bulletin which was a pretty reverent magazine in late 19th century Australia, early 20th century Australia. And the, the Breaker is also most famous after the fact because he was executed for murder by British authorities during the South African War. He was executed for murder along with another fellow and another chap that got imprisoned because he was a murderer. But this, this, is, this was the fact of what he'd done. And he was, to my mind at least, executed according to the rules and regulations of the era, entirely in accordance with the rules and regulations of the era. But here's where the myth of Breaker disconnected to the reality of his criminal activity. This guy was always a ratbag. This is a fellow who had created a persona for himself in Australia, not based on reality. He was a con man. He was a con artist. He passed himself off as the son of English aristocracy, sort of the, the uh, lost child or the rogue child gone and, and ended up making himself more of a bushman than the Australians. Well, we love that sort of stuff in Australia because even though we call ourselves so class unconscious, we absolutely were class conscious at that, at that time. So the prodigal son ends up being able to ride and drink harder than what we think the Australians are makes for a great yarn. And worse... Here's this fellow who went to South Africa just doing what the British, British asked him to do. Forget the fact he called himself British, but just asking what the British asked him to do, and he got executed by the brass hats for doing nothing more than following orders. Sort of so the story goes. So it feeds into this Australian victimhood. We don't do bad things. We just get tricked into doing bad things by bad people. It's a story of Vietnam, right? But it's absolutely the case for the breaker. There's been heaps of attempts to try and rehabilitate his reputation. Uh, there's a famous movie made of him that was in the school syllabus for a while. All of these things and all of these, all these ideas and myths, which are all about Australian identity, right? All of them based on a fellow who was a con man and a murderer. So if you can explain how that works, then I think you really got the gist about this mythology history thing. So big one, I think it's the idea that Australia herself was under threat during World War II. Yeah, it is a diff another one that's difficult for us to deal with. Um, certainly Australia was threatened in World War II as part of um, as groups of alliances with the British, etc., and particularly was threatened or most threatened by the Indo-Pacific War from Japanese aggression. There's no question about that. We've all got maps. We see the Japanese 100 Days of Victory, its advance through Southeast Asia, etc., etc. However, there's an idea or an enduring idea in Australia that the, the Japanese were had always planned to and were on the verge of invading Australia, particularly in 1942. And that's something that we've always been fearful of. The Asiatic hordes, as part of Australian historical racism. It used to, originally it was the Russians, then we wrote novels about the 
you know, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody. The, it's the idea of being overrun by these hordes that are sort of non-Anglo-Saxon. It's a rich history of that in Australia, particularly at this time leading up to the middle of the 20th century. So it's been the doomsday scenario, if you like. And it's this idea that, um, that the, the Japanese were coming. Now, there was a period for about six months um, where we were unsure about Japanese intentions, but that soon passed with the cracking of Japanese naval codes and the progress of the strategic circumstances of the war. The government did nothing to let the people know there's no need not to panic anymore because they're selling war bonds and all sorts of things. So you get this, this sort of hangover in Australia of how close we came to being invaded. That's never, that was never going to happen. We, in fact, we got to the point a few years ago, I think, where people were advocating for a, um, what was the term that being used? Um, Battle for Australia Day, as if there was some seminal event or set of events that saved us from being invaded. And we know now as historians with access to the fragmented Japanese operational record of the period that the Japanese were never coming to Australia. The Japanese didn't have the resources to come to Australia. The best thing we could find is that a fragmented sort of equivalent of a, a study paper from the Japanese Navy saying, what would we have to do if we were going to make a landing in Australia? Quickly discounted by the general staff, quickly discounted by the army saying, we've absolutely not got the troops for this. And by the way, you haven't got the ships for it. And by the way, if you did, the American Navy would make a meal of it and would thank you for your troubles. Um, and, and sort of on the basis of this evidence that somebody thought about it at some stage, this whole idea of an inevitable Australian invasion of Australia has sprouted. And it gets better, though. Not only were we about to, to be invaded, but it was only Australia's Thermopylae line, if you like, the battles on the Kokoda Trail by Australians that saved us from such a fate. Again, makes no strategic sense. That's not what happened. But it fits this... It fits this cultural preference in so many ways. But the Japanese were not coming south. Had they come south, they would have uh, the Pacific War would have been a little bit shorter than actually than it actually was in many ways. And it also conveniently conveniently writes the Americans out of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There is that. Uh, there is across the board, I think, a concept that Australia has historically fought other people's wars, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there is. And to step back, I think most countries or populations or groups of people in countries like to see their their nation in a positive light. Uh, that is, we like to be the good guys, I guess, or, or to feel ourselves as the good guys. And in Australia, there's a little bit of victimhood too when it comes to these military adventures. Always a small or junior country as part of a of a larger coalition or part of a larger war, never, never determinative on our own but always suffering casualties and large numbers of casualties in the, in the world wars. So this, this idea that we've spent our, um, our 20th century history fighting other people's wars comes up. And it comes as a bit of a throwback from Vietnam projected backwards, actually. These nasty things happened, nasty war, but, but you know, we were tricked there, we were tricked into doing it by the British, or we were tricked into doing it by the Americans. And we suffered the consequences of being drawn into these dirty conflicts, with the exception of the world wars, which were never seen as dirty conflicts, and rightly so. Um, but again, a political historian will tell you, as much as a military historian will, that that's never been the case. In fact, 
sort of rarely among the community of nations, every war Australia's chosen to be in, unless you're an Aborigine, every war Australia's chosen to be in has been a war of choice, not a war of national survival. That means some of those choices have been harder to make than others. Mm. But the first, the first war the nation was involved in as a nation was in uh, South Africa. That's a long way from Australia. There were reasons, and as I've talked about, cultural reasons why commitment to that war was inevitable. But it's not someone else's. That's our war. Even if we, if we turn the clock all the way forward and talk about something like Vietnam, Australian politicians and diplomats worked overtime to get the Americans to enter Vietnam and so we could be there to shore up the Hansus and other alliance treaties. We're more hawkish than they are because in the Cold War context, there was everything to gain for Australia to have a closer relationship with the United States and Vietnam was part of that, along with the genuine belief in the domino theory and so on and so forth. But the idea that we tripped and fell into conflicts has never been the case. That's just not how it works. Australians, decision makers and elites have made real politic, cost-benefit analysis, calculating decisions to commit troops to war, to war, as they still do. No different from anywhere else here. Craig, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about this. It's such a relevant discussion to be had at the moment about perception and the dangers of projection as well, which people just don't seem to understand the difference between talking about the history and educating people on the history, however uncomfortable it is, rather than just burying it. Seems to be a theme at the moment. Look, if we stop having conversations, Alex, if we stop arguing with each other around the edges, if we can't have robust discussion, well, that's, that's the, not only is that is the end of history. Yeah. It's the end of scholarship as well, full stop, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a world that I, that I would, um, would happily inhabit, I'm afraid. No, me neither. Let's go live on an island somewhere. It's not. It's got to be. A, it's got to be warm though, and there has to be gin. There has to be a gin distillery. It sounds sounds good to me. Join us tomorrow when Adrian Goldsworthy will be celebrating the release of his brand new book by talking to us all about Philip and Alexander. His book's released this week. It's fantastic and you really need to tune in to listen to a great historian telling you all about two giants in the ancient world. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.